Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Jim Harmon, current chairman and CEO of Caravel Management. Jim has had an incredible career working as an investor, working on Wall Street. He was the chair of the Exim Bank. He is the chair of the World Resources Institute. He's had a really interesting career in the private sector and the public sector. He's written a really interesting new book, a memoir called Up and Doing. It's a really interesting book. It's a fun read. I encourage everyone to read Jim Harmon's new book, Up and Doing. Jim, I love the book. It's a terrific memoir on the successes and challenges you faced in your professional life. Why did you write this book? First, because I wanted to tell the story of our work in Egypt to truly promote enterprise funds as a future um, in my opinion, important strategy for the United States. That was the first reason. As I got going, I thought I should tell the story of the World Resources Institute because we have had successes along the way. And even though we haven't solved the big climate problem, we have made some major progress. And that was important. Third, I think there's a little too much pessimism in the world, and I tilt towards optimism. So telling some of the stories where we made a difference, whether it was in Egypt, whether it was Exim Bank, whether it was in the private sector, I believe in solutions. And so it was an opportunity to tell my story, but to really focus on the first two points. I think it was great. I think it comes out in the book. It's a really engaging read that your new memoir, Up and Doing. What is the reason for the title? Why do you call it Up and Doing? When I was young and my father would come in and wake me up because I was sleeping too long and not going to school, he was more literary than I was. He would quote the Wadsworth Psalm of Life, which begins, let us then be up and doing with a heart for any faith, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. And he would drill us that every morning. And my sister and I would get up and say, oh, my God, let us then be up and doing. But it stayed with me. It stayed with me. So it's very much of an American optimistic position. Let's get going. Let's solve these problems. So I love that. I had not heard that before. I really liked it. And I was really impressed with your father. Your father spoke six languages. Yes. What did he speak? He spoke English, but he was quite a bit different than me. He was an avid reader. When he was 50 years old, he read the history of mathematics. Later, he then read all of Shakespeare again, just a very literary person, but he spoke quite fluent. He couldn't believe that I worked in Italy for a year and I wasn't fluent in Italian. I was never inclined to learn languages. He said, to be educated, you have to at least speak five languages. I couldn't believe it. That was, that's amazing. I speak two and I feel pretty good. And my wife speaks four and I think she's pretty smart. Yeah, six languages. That's amazing. My friends in Europe love that part of it. It's very, very impressive. So you had a fabulous career on Wall Street. You talk about it in the book. And then you, at the age of 60, went to the U.S. Exim Bank. What is the U.S. Exim Bank? Talk about that. And then talk about some of your work. You had a number of really interesting experiences as the chair of the Exim Bank. Yes. So Exim Bank is a referred to as a trade finance agency that supports U.S. exports that would not go forward 
if it wasn't for the support of the United States government. So it's very important for job creation in the United States, very important for the developing and frontier world to have the sources of capital to buy what they need from the United States. One of the institutions you set up, the Sub-Saharan African Advisory Committee, I chaired that for the last two years. You were the first chair of the Exim Bank to visit Africa. And you caught a little bit of flack for that. It was a little bit of a a stretch for the culture of the organization at the time. You were way ahead of the curve on seeing Africa as a business opportunity. You chaired the Corporate Council on Africa briefly for a period of time. But you walked the talk on this. 20 years later, folks have kind of followed your lead on this. But how did you first come across Africa as a business opportunity? I I give credit really to Hillary Clinton, who I followed Bill Clinton into Africa. And when she came back, I happened to meet her the time early in my tenure at Exim Bank. And she was telling me that no one had ever even heard of Exim Bank, a lot of the people she met with. I knew that the Europeans had a long-term relationship with Africa, but I hadn't realized how little we had been trading with Africa. So for our business community, this was a no-brainer. We could do a lot more. So I had addressed the Asian crisis and I was looking to build support for more exports. And the way to do it was, of course, to pick the markets that were growing where we hadn't done much. So it was not a terribly difficult business decision. Once I went, I realized how much more we could do there. Then we had to open up in all these countries. It's amazing to me in the 48 countries. I think we were open first in only 13 of the 48. How could the United States not be open in those countries? And so then I learned that it's kind of difficult to get the Exim Bank to open in those countries because it's a multi-agency decision. So I had to work through the other agencies and departments to get us to open in those countries. And eventually we got to it. Four years later, we were doing very significant business in Africa. First year, we had supported only $40 million of exports, and that was out of about $12 billion that year. And next year, we had supported as close to $400 million, and the third year, about $800 million. And the year I left Exim, we supported a billion two hundred million of exports out of the United States to Sub-Saharan Africa. It was really just by focus. I mean, we have the product, we have the expertise to do it, but we had to convince not only the Africans, but the American exporters to accept those markets. And we had not done much of it. I remember when I was on a board of a small company that made orthopedic equipment back in the mid-70s. At the time, we got an order from Nigeria to buy products. And I remember the president saying to me, what do you think I should do with this? This is $200,000. We'll lose all our money. They'll never pay us. We didn't take it. It stayed in my mind for a while. We lost a lot of business in those years. Eventually, when we realized how important Africa was. And we opened up in those countries and we started to educate, I'd say, the U.S. manufacturers and exporters. We started to do a lot more business. You were head of the Exim Bank during the Asian financial crisis. Talk about what the role of the Exim Bank was during the Asian financial crisis. That's a very important thing. And Fortunately, we've gotten a little bit better now at memorializing, keeping track of what we did in that period of time. But I had been at Exim, just been confirmed. It was the summer of 1997 when the Thai bot collapsed, and I didn't really follow what that really meant to us. Months later, uh, I would learn that problems were developing in Korea, as well as in Thailand, as well as Indonesia. I remember having a meeting with my staff at about October, November, and I said, this is what I'm hearing from Asia. This is a serious problem. They're running into a lot of difficulties. And if you look at the receivables, we have significant receivables from Asia that we have to address. 
don't you think we should all go there? Everybody said, why would we go? They're just going to ask us for money and we don't want to give them more money at this time. So I said, we're likely to learn something. Maybe we'll even find a solution. I thought to myself, it was quite a bit different than the private sector. So we organized a team of people, very smart, capable people. I remember them all very well. And we went and we visited. When we got to Korea, it was an eye opener because the Koreans are very serious about their country and grateful to the United States for the long history of the relationship. I couldn't help but look back and see how much money the United States had spent from the Korean War on. It was close to $50 billion. And that we should help Korea, it was obvious. And we found a way basically to do it. We could support by confirming letters of credit. We could support their ability to buy raw materials and spare parts from the United States. Probably one of the most interesting parts of it tells you a little bit about that is once we got going, the staff at XM, who rarely worked on weekends, became excited by it. And they could see, wow, we're really supporting trade that wouldn't have gotten done. And these countries really need us. When I was in Korea, I was shocked to see people taking their jewelry off and putting it into a container that would go to the government. They were giving things away to help their government. This was a serious, dedicated population. And they had a new president at the time. And I met with him and I left there thinking, this is really important for us to do. This versus the private sector experience I had is that nine months later, I would call together my group and I would say, how are we doing on our Korean effort? We've supported $2 billion of trade. How much have we lost? Oh, Mr. Chairman, they said, we haven't lost anything. I said, we haven't lost anything. You mean, this is turnover stuff over 60 days or 90 days. It turns over and we haven't lost anything. I thought to myself, why didn't you come in and tell me we should increase the size of this program immediately and do it in Indonesia and Thailand? In the private sector, as you know, everybody focuses on getting a good bonus or getting paid a lot. They would have been in trying to tell me what a great job they've done. It didn't happen there. So once I learned about it, we did increase the program significantly. And the staff was very excited and proud that XM could play this role. And I would go in on a Saturday and a Sunday, and they were there working. And I'd never seen that before. So I thought, wow, if we can get public staff employees to be that dedicated and excited about what they're doing, that was thrilling to me. And of course, we did very well with it. I had gotten a memorandum from my staff and from the Treasury Department. The 15 leading banks in Korea, they said to me, were all insolvent. We couldn't accept their guarantees. We'll lose money. The Treasury, I have framed this little note. We're going to lose money. They're all insolvent. And I took the risk. I remember saying, we're going to do it because I think they're going to pay us back. I believe it. And I think they care about their country. And I think they would do it. And that was an important decision. I was very happy I made it. We never lost anything at all. In the end, we did somewhere three to $4 billion in Korea alone. Maybe it was $5 billion. And then we went on to other countries. Good lesson to be learned. Exim played a very important role. So, Jim, just two other things. Do we still need Exim Bank today? I think the answer is yes. But, and I suspect you think the answer is yes. But I want to hear your reasoning as to why the answer to that question is yes. Yes, we need it for a number of reasons, but it could get reformed, as the Europeans and Asians have done. There will be another crisis, surely, in it throughout the world, who knows when. So having XM as a lender of last resort, the Treasury would be the first one to say, we were able to support trade to keep their economies moving forward. They need raw materials and spare parts. 
if we were not there, I don't know what would have happened. But we did something that was interesting at that time, which also shows you how you can be imaginative. We called a conference of the export credit agencies of the G7. That had not been done before. And fortunately, someone gave me some good advice and says, don't do it just alone. Ask the Japanese to co-manage it. So the Japanese and the United States co-managed that meeting, that conference in London. We invited all the other export credit agencies of the world. We had 25 export credit agencies there. And I basically proposed, let's stay open and not turn down Asia. Let's support them in this crisis. So you need Exim Bank to be able to be the lender of last resort. You also need Exim Bank to do a number of other things, which you don't have time to get into now, but we cannot walk away from supporting exporters and on exports that wouldn't get done if it wasn't for the government guarantee. I agree. I've been an active supporter of the Exim Bank in my time at CSIS. And I just also know that you've remained active and a supporter of the Exim Bank since your time in government. And so I think you've been an important voice, Jim, on speaking up for the importance of the Exim Bank. So thank you for doing that. One of the things, Jim, I wanted to flag is throughout the book, which I think is important to note, the ability to have a really big impact at a not so famous institution. Like you could have gone and been the deputy secretary of the treasury and you turned it down in essence. Partially, I think I'm going to put words in your mouth because I think you thought you could make a bigger difference in a smaller pond, if you will. And so you did a lot that we just had this conversation about how you shifted the way American business thought about Africa. And you had a key role in the Asian financial crisis. This was because you were chair of the Exim Bank, which not everyone has heard of or knows about. I've always felt I could make a greater difference in an agency, which was a size that I could be there. And I felt the same way in the business community, both the investment banker I served. I even felt the same way when I took on the Egyptian assignment. I could make a greater difference in Egypt. So I do believe we can solve problems. I do believe if we're all fortunate enough to find a place where we can make a difference, a very important thing to do. I want to talk about the World Resources Institute. You took the World Resources Institute. You've been the chair since 2004. And there's been at least one, maybe two cultural shifts in the environmental movement, if I can call it that. And since you started, the organization has grown quite a lot. Tell us a little bit about WRI and talk a little bit about how you see the role of the WRI in the world of environmental issues. I met WRI when I was at Exim Bank. You may know that a little earlier than the time I arrived at Exim Bank, Congress had come to an agreement on with Exim Bank about our standards for supporting projects, that we had to meet certain standards on environmental matters. We were the only country in the G7 that did that. So at my first meeting where I chaired the G7 meeting of export credit agencies, I proposed that the other export credit agencies of the G7 agree with the same standards we had. Otherwise, we were not going to achieve anything if all our exporters, if they can't make it here, they'll go and make it somewhere else. So we took a vote at the end of the weekend, and I remember it was six to one against me. I couldn't convince one of the other countries to join with me. Then I realized something very important that I sort of a minor reason for writing the books. I've never done well just reading a report or watching the screen. I've done well when I develop relationships. Relationship building is really important, and it's very important in the world today. If everybody stays behind their computer and it's sequestered at home, we're not going anywhere. So a little bit of the reason was to tell that story. But my experience there, I decided I would go visit each of the export credit agencies in their office. So I went to London and the Germany and the Tokyo, and I visited each one of them, and I made the case. 
Gradually, we got them to agree, but it never would have happened if I didn't have a personal relationship by going that route. When I first got turned down, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, and I remember certain members of Congress took me to task saying that we didn't support the Three Gorges Dam at the time when we should have because we had some disagreement and we couldn't get the other export credit agencies to align ourselves. So they did all the business. Basically, members of Congress said, either you get the other export credit agencies to agree to our standards or we're going to drop the standards. Anyway, relationships are critical. I try not to breakfast or lunch alone, Jim. I subscribe to your school of thought about that. And I think in the age of COVID, I've done 1,000 or 1,500 Zoom calls. I would argue that whatever your social capital was on March the 15th or March the 12th of 2020 is sort of kind of what your social capital is today because it's hard to meet new people in this age of Zoom. There's not really conferences. It's hard to network. So in some ways, your social capital is a depreciating asset to some extent. I don't know if it's anthropological or psychological, but we need some ability to connect with people in person. It developed into one of the reasons I wrote the book. Yes, I wrote it for the course to tell the Egyptian story. Yes, to tell the WRI story. But I wanted people to know we have to go out and meet and work with people. You cannot just participate in Zoom calls. So just one more thing about WRI. There's been a significant sea change in thinking about the carbon transition. Are you optimistic about the carbon transition? How are we going to achieve that? Building WRI was a challenge because when I got there, it was stalled out, I would say. People were quite depressed. Unfortunately, I was able to persuade Al Gore to join the board. And once he joined the board, I could got a lot of other people to join the board. So we got some momentum going. It was somewhat similar to the Exim Bank experience, somewhat similar to Egypt, all the things I've had. People were a little down when I got there. We had to build it out, and we have found a way to build it out. We have achieved some great things at WRI during this last 15 to 20 years. We haven't solved the big problem, but we've made major changes in programs. Basically, we came up with the accounting method to score carbon emissions. How do we score that, which was very important many years ago? We have something called Global Forest Watch. We were able to use satellite viewing to pick off when there's illegal forest cutting down of trees, and that's not reported. So we were able to report on that. We've done a lot of good programs, and we have grown very significant inside. Now you come to the important thing. This conference coming up, unless the countries of the world work together, we will not solve this problem. But we are heading towards getting the countries to agree, in my opinion. So I would say I'm cautiously optimistic that we can make some serious progress at this conference and afterwards in terms of coming to an agreement among the countries to go after this terrible problem. But I believe we have a good chance to get there. So, Jim, let's talk about the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund. What is an enterprise fund? And how did you end up becoming the chair of the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund? Enterprise funds were funded at the beginning, about 1990. One of the good things about enterprise funds is it was an originally the idea of the Bush one administration. So it's a Republican idea that the Democrats have picked up. So I always thought we should have good support on the Hill because both parties have supported it at various different times. They were formed at the early part of the 1990s to support the countries transitioning out of a communistic system into building private sectors in these countries. And so the Enterprise Fund concept was to help the private sector to grow in these countries by investing in companies and helping the private sector to grow. We did reasonable during the first decade of enterprise funds, and then President Obama and Hillary Clinton followed it back 
after the revolution in Egypt, uh, Congress passed a very important restart of enterprise funds with the Egyptian American Enterprise Fund and the Enterprise Fund in Tunisia. That, I think, was significantly different than the 1990s. And we've had very important success in growing the private sector in Egypt. There are three important reasons why enterprise funds now are succeeding to a much greater extent than they were in the 1990s. Original idea was a great idea. It was good in some countries and not as good in some other countries. But now we have human capital. We have talent in the frontier in the developing world. Many of them have gone to school here or gone to school in the UK or have worked in the financial community in the United States. But there is talent in the frontier and developing world. There's technology spreading around the world. So with that technology, much of what succeeded with us in the States here or in Europe now can be applied in the frontier world. That our first investment in Egypt was in a payment service, an electronic payment service that allowed people who didn't have bank accounts, and that's 80-odd percent of the people in Egypt do not have a bank account, they could pay their bills. They could do other things by going to a kiosk and putting a card in there. That has grown very significantly. So technology spread throughout the world. Capital flows have spread around. So between capital flows, human capital, and technology, it's no surprise that we've been able to show the results that we've been able to show. We took $300 million that government gave us. The market value today, in my judgment, is closer to $700 million. And when we liquidate it in another seven years, it's going to be a good deal more than a billion dollars. We've invested and we have created significant jobs and created some real momentum in the private sector in Egypt. And the United States has made significant profits. So this should be scaled up in a large way in a number of other countries where they need it because we have talent in those countries. They've come here maybe, but they would go back when they're there now. The technology has spread. So there's no reason that we shouldn't incorporate this concept of enterprise funds into our foreign policy strategy in a much broader basis than just the two countries. It should be done in Central America. It should be done throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. I 100% agree with you. I think this is a great idea. We've had many conversations about enterprise funds over the years. I'm on the board of the Western Newly Independent States Enterprise Fund, one of the remaining legacy enterprise funds from that earlier period. Why, in your estimation, Jim, is why we haven't seen more enthusiasm for an enterprise fund in, say, Central America or in some of the regions of Sub-Saharan Africa? There's a couple of reasons, as best I'm able to tell. One, you need some real champions on the Hill who really believe in it. Today, there's a lot of things happening that are on everybody's plate. There's a huge fight over the budget. We have climate as a major consideration. This will happen. I'm convinced. In fact, I make the case now that the enterprise fund success in Egypt should be focused in the next set of enterprise funds on sustainability. We could answer the question of how do we raise the capital for the frontier in developing countries, the capital that we've promised those countries, which is certainly a big item for discussion coming up in the conference next month. And the way to do that is to create enterprise funds and maybe to ask other countries to join us in that sense. We could create hundreds of billions of dollars of capital for these countries that desperately need to make the transition from carbon to renewable. This is a very important time, and the Enterprise Fund could help to do that. So here's a case where we could combine our success has been in Egypt. That's all you have to do is look, how do we do that? There are lots of other people like myself that could do it in these countries. So we're not a shortage of people. We have the formula. 
we just take a look at what we've done in Egypt. We do this in a number of other countries. I would welcome other countries doing the same thing. We could focus a little bit more on sustainability so that these countries could see what we're trying to do from a climate point of view. Jim, I really loved your book, Up and Doing. Are there some messages you want the reader to take away that you want to leave us with at the end of this conversation now? I think optimism is significant. I believe unless we're all a little hopeful, we're not going to solve problems. I think that there's a lot of talent in this world and we can solve these problems. And you have to be a bit patient. You can go to a smaller agency. You can go to a smaller company. You can go anywhere where you can make a difference. And then you just have to work hard to get there. We can solve these problems. I'm convinced even climate, we can solve the terribly difficult problem we have there. We can solve the economic development problem. I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get there. It sometimes takes a while and sometimes takes some patience, but be patient, find your place, and then try to make a difference. Jim, I actually want to go back to this issue of relationships as a third message. In an age of Zoom and email, knowing people and having personal relationships really still matters. Is that right? Frankly, you're a good example of that because your interpersonal skill sets allow you to relate to people. That's something important. If you sit your whole life in front of the computer and you never develop those interpersonal skill sets, it's going to be hard to solve problems. We have the talent in the country. There's no question about that. Lots of talented people. They have to be focused a bit on solving the problems and personal relationships are critical to getting there. Let me just leave you with one other thing. Like I said, you were way ahead of the curve on Africa 20 years ago. You were an optimist on Egypt when you tell some pretty hairy, scary stories when you kind of got it up and running in 2012 and 2013. As you look ahead out in the developing world and we're in an age of kind of disruption and COVID, where are some places you're optimistic about in terms of markets? I'm generally optimistic that the frontier world has enormous growth potential because you could literally take the most successful company we invested in Egypt, which is in the payment service business. Recently, they decided to join with a very bright woman to create a payment service in Sudan. When I went to the board of directors of the Enterprise Fund, the Egyptians said to me, Sudan, we lost more money in Sudan, and they told me all the reasons it was trouble. But Sudan has 50 million people. Yes, it doesn't have a big private sector, but it's become a friend of the United States now. It has developed the right strategy. But this payment service in Sudan will succeed as other businesses will. So I look for countries that are in the early stages of turnaround. Sudan is an example. There's a number of other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. But I believe we can help the Haitians now. We must focus on our own crisis there. And that's something we need to do. And having an enterprise fund in Haiti led by some Haitian Americans who I know are very talented would be very significant. Same thing in Central America. I'm optimistic that the countries are going through the most difficulty that recognize that reforms are needed. One day, Zimbabwe will do the right thing on reforms and that will attract capital. All you have to look at is when Egypt signed the IMF agreement in 2015, and made the reforms necessary. You could see Egypt take off in front of you. I knew it was gonna do this now. The same thing will hold true in a number of other frontier world countries. When they come to the understanding that you need to make certain reforms, which countries will get to? We're close right now. So I guess I'd be looking for the countries that are turning, the countries in Central America and in Sub-Saharan Africa and some in Asia. Probably that's where I would look. 
Is China going to rule the world, Jim? Well, China is going to be a major powerhouse long term, whether they rule the world. We used to say the same thing when at different times, about one point or other, that we thought Russia would. We thought clearly that many other countries would make it there. It doesn't usually happen, but China will have the staying power to be a major power. I don't think they're going to rule the world. I would prefer if we were reaching out, building relationships with China, trying to understand their problems and their opportunities better. I think we could do a little bit better in that area. China is too important for us to ignore, us being the United States. China has enormous assets, value, and has enormous power. I don't necessarily think they're going to rule the world, but I do think they're going to play a major role. And we have to build strong relationships between China and ourselves going forward. Jim, thanks a lot. I loved your book, Up and Doing. Jim Harmon's book, Up and Doing. You ought to go out and read it. I encourage you all to buy it. And thanks, Jim, for doing this. Thanks, Dan, for inviting me. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 